With the arrival of school being out and summer break, my wife and I have a lot of plans for our children. We call them summer family fun days, where we take a day off of work and we go and do something locally. We have a list of items that we want to do this summer, list of items, places we want to see, museums we want to visit, that kind of thing. And as we shared and worked on that list with our children, we finalized the list and said, this is what is coming this summer. But it's not enough for my children to know what's going to happen. They want to know more. They want to know when. They want to know how. They want to know what kind. As Christians, it is also natural to want to know more. More than just the fact that we will one day have a resurrection body. Much of our curiosity has been satisfied for us thus far over these past few weeks as Paul has explained more about our future glory, our resurrection bodies. But the questions of when, how, and what kind remain. And this morning, Paul will answer some of these queries for us. I invite you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 53. As we continue our study of not the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the future resurrection of Christians following in line with the Lord Jesus Christ. This life is not all. These perishable, decaying bodies will one day die, as all bodies will, as all people will. But we will enter into eternity, glory in a resurrected, sinless, never decaying, never dying body. And he continues this explanation in verses 50 through 53 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. This morning I want to give you an outline which is four certainties, four certainties of the resurrection transformation. As we look at various aspects of the resurrection body and the resurrection occurrence, there are four certainties of the resurrection transformation. The first is the resurrection, or excuse me, the inescapable restriction. The inescapable restriction. For us to live in eternity, there is a restriction that everyone must face. We see this in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Whenever someone inherits a fortune in this world, there is some sort of restriction placed upon the receipt of the inheritance. Despite being the legal beneficiary, they won't see a penny of that inheritance until certain requirements or a requirement is met. Most commonly, as we know, is the death of the grantor. It could be the recipient coming of age. It could be many different things. As believers, 
we have been promised an inheritance. It is the kingdom of God. And in the description of the separation of the sheep and the goats, which is believers and unbelievers at the end of days, Christ explains that God will then say to the sheep, the Christians, in Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is much that is involved here. But suffice it to say that we will possess an eternal existence, an eschatological existence. And this inheritance is ours. And it is ours as Christians because we are the rightful heirs. Not just Israel, but we as Gentiles as well. And we are the rightful heirs because of our adoption into the family of God, our adoption as sons. Listen as I read Galatians 3.29. It says, If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants. His point being that even if you are not genetically related to Abraham, in other words, you're not a Jew, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. And then it closes saying, heirs according to promise. Titus 3.7. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so we are clued in there to what our inheritance includes, and that is eternal life. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3.7. To be clear, these verses say that heirs are those who belong to Jesus Christ, those who are saved, those who are redeemed, those who have been justified. In other words, this inheritance... And this brings us into the broader context of what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians 15. Our inheritance is not ours simply because we are descendants of Adam. It's not simply because we are human. It's not simply because we are alive. It's not simply because we possess physical flesh and blood. It is because we are in Jesus Christ. We have recognized that we are sinners We have recognized that we are sinners before a holy God who created us and created the very laws, the morality, the standard in his character that we are to abide by. And every single human being has sinned. And because of that, we are destined for punishment, which is an eternity in hell. And there's a problem there because there is nothing the Bible says that we can do in and of ourselves to appease God to get to heaven, to have a right relationship with God, we are at war with God by our very nature as human beings. And that's why God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who is 100% man and 100% God, the only acceptable sacrifice to live the perfect life that God demanded of us, which we never lived, no one can. And then as a sinless, innocent human being died on the cross, Physically, his heart stopped beating, his lungs stopped taking in air. He was physically dead, declared so by professional executioners, and proving that he is God and victorious over death and that he took the penalty of sin on the cross for all who would believe in him. He was raised on the third day in physical resurrection body and then ascended and is at the right hand of throne, at the throne of God the Father. And we are heirs, not because we are human, 
but because those of us who are believers have recognized these truths known as the gospel, we have declared Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We believe in our hearts that He died and rose from the dead. And so we are heirs. Not just because we are flesh and blood, but because we are redeemed. And that leads us to the restriction of our inheritance. Just like the earthly inheritance of a son from his father is restricted until certain criteria are met, so it is with our eternal inheritance. And the criterion is spelled out for us in this verse. He says in verse 53 or 50 again, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You see, our inheritance is of another realm, another, another world, if you will, but that's not really a, a good way to put it because you could claim that another country is another world, Mars is another world, it's even beyond that. It's just another existence entirely. And what must happen before we can obtain that inheritance is a transformation, which, of course, if you've been with us for the past couple weeks, you know that this transformation is unto the resurrection body. He says flesh and blood. This represents our present nature, our physical bodies, our bodies in their current form that are subject to death and decay. They're characterized by weakness and fragility. And you say, no, I just watched our team take home another trophy. They're a tip-top shape. They are not weak. They are not fragile. They are professional athletes. But they got injured. They're sore today. They got hurt. They will die. They will de decay. And in just a mere two or three years, in their mid to late 30s, they will be considered extremely old for their profession because they too are decaying. We are weak, we are fragile in comparison to what we were made to be in the Garden of Eden. We are weak and fragile compared to Jesus Christ in His resurrection body. We are weak and fragile compared to what we will one day be in our resurrection bodies. Paul has referred to flesh and blood earlier as the natural body. He calls it perishable here. And in this perishable state, we cannot receive our inheritance because our inheritance involves an imperishable state for which these bodies cannot survive. They are not suited. They cannot survive there. God created us and sustains us perfectly to live on this place, but not in the new earth, the eternal earth. And the reason that place is imperishable is because there is, this is so important, no sin. It is imperishable because there is no sin. By the very nature of the kingdom of God, sin is excluded. And to be clear in this context, the kingdom of God is referring to the eternal state. Here's the point. Our earthly bodies are unfit to live in eternity, even though it is our promised inheritance. Something has to change. You receive an inheritance of 10,000 euro. You need to change that for it to work here. 
horrible analogy in comparison to a resurrection body. But something has to change for our inheritance to be received. Let's move on to see how that comes about. Our second certainty of the resurrection transformation is the imminent revelation. The imminent revelation. Look at verse 51. He continues, Behold, which marks, listen, I'm going to tell you something very important. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now in the New Testament, a mystery is something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed through Jesus Christ, namely revealed in the pages of the New Testament or in the life of Jesus Christ. Without his revelation, man would not even know because these mysteries are beyond the scope of human intelligence and understanding. No amount of research or science in the human realm, in the scientific world, in man's logic, could we come up with these mysteries. You can't go to a fortune teller. You can't split the atom and go, oh, the sinless man's mother's name is going to be Mary. Only if Christ reveals these truths can we know them. And the mystery that Paul is referring to here is not merely about the death of the earthly body and the raising of the resurrection body. The mystery is that some Christians will be changed into a suitable body for eternity before their earthly bodies die. And this is what he means by we will not all sleep. Sleep being a euphemism for death, a fitting euphemism for Christians because even at death, the sleep, we will one day wake again. We will be resurrected. So, there will be some who are alive when Jesus returns, is all that he is saying. And the mystery is simply that those alive at the rapture will not need to die. Look carefully at the verse. Not all believers will die, but all believers will be changed, transformed, altered, this includes the living and the dead in Jesus Christ. And as we've seen before, since Paul's concern here is the resurrection body and the resurrection body has to do with end times, he brings in end times issues. But his goal is not to explain all of those events here nor argue for a particular timing of the Lord's coming. His point is simply to explain that at the end there will be a change. This change will be dramatic. And it has to be to overcome the significant barrier between the earthly and the heavenly, the finite and the infinite, the heavenly, the earthly, the finite, the infinite, but also the dying and the everlasting, the perishable and the imperishable. And that leads us to verse 52, the instantaneous reformation. Our third certainty of the resurrection transformation, the instantaneous reformation. He says in verse 52, this is how it's going to happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. The change Paul's talking about will happen suddenly quickly and instantaneously. 
Today, whether natural or cosmetic change in physical appearance in this life is slow. It's a process. It takes work. But just as the salvation that guarantees our future bodies is wholly the work of God, so is the change, so he doesn't need time. He can do it immediately. There's no time, there's no process necessary. Paul describes the quickness of the change with two descriptions. He says in the verse, in a moment, and secondly, in the twinkling of an eye. You're going to like this, you... uh, Grammar nerds. The word moment in the ancient Greek here in the original language of the New Testament is the word atomos. Sound familiar? It's the word for which we get the English word atom. Because before modern science and modern technology discovered electrons and protons, the atom was considered the smallest thing in existence and thus indivisible. This word then refers to the smallest conceivable amount of time. It's so small you can't break it up. A minute is quick, but you can break it up into seconds, seconds into milliseconds. This time is so small you can't break it into anything smaller. It is the smallest conceivable instant. That's how quickly we will all be changed. Again, not a process of change, not a metamorphosis, but instantaneous change. And to drive home the point, Paul also refers to the twinkling of an eye. Twinkling refers to any rapid movement. Twinkling of an eye refers to what is the quickest movement in the body, which is the movement of your eye. A darting glance out of the corner of the eye. Think about it. How often in sports or just walking down the road do your eyes quickly move to see something, but the body is too slow to catch the ball or dodge the twig flying at you? It's fast. In ancient Greece, in addition to the quick glance of the eye, they would use the word twinkling to refer to one flap of the wing, the buzz of a gnat, the vibration of a harp string, or the twinkling of a star. Moments too fast to even register. And so we know this is fast, instant. Sometimes we have this picture in our minds that Hollywood has given us of someone being transformed either into some sort of eternal body or superhero or something, and he's usually swept up into some sort of tornado, and he's floating around as different pieces of armor start popping onto his body with Flashing lights, sparkles everywhere. It's quick, but it still takes a few minutes. This is not what happens. There will be no trumpet sound. We meet the Lord and we say, I'm being transformed. It's coming. It's happening. It's happening. No. We will hear a trumpet sound and we'll go, whoa, what just happened? It'll be done. It'll be over. The instantaneous reformation or renewal will take place at a time that has been predetermined by God. We do not know the day or the hour, but the Father alone. Matthew 24, 36. In that verse, Jesus says, I don't even know. The angels don't even know. And when he comes, he will come quickly. 
He will catch the world off guard like a thief in the night, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 tells us. And despite the secrecy of the timing, when it does happen, we are told that it will be announced with a miraculous trumpet that will be heard around the world, a trumpet blast. If you have read the Scriptures, you are familiar that in both the Old and New Testaments, the presence or manifestation of God is associated with a trumpet. In Exodus 19, the Israelites are under Moses' leadership. They have reached in their Exodus Mount Sinai. And God calls Moses to consecrate the people because he said, I am coming down to the mountain into their sight. They will see me. I will speak. And on the third day after the consecration is over, it happens and verse 16 tells us, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning, flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. God was there. Zechariah 9.14, God promises to defend and avenge His people and it's described like this. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the storm winds of the south. It is understandable then that the Jewish imagery of the Lord's appearing is connected to a trumpet heralding his arrival, and that is exactly what happens when we get to the New Testament. Turn again with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17. We read this earlier in our scripture reading. It speaks of the Lord coming. It describes the rapture. Paul writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. This is the description of the rapture. And the trumpet mentioned here is the same trumpet Paul mentions in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, many other places in Scripture, but if at the rapture the time was for Jesus' earthly reign, then he would have come all the way down instead of take us up halfway where we're going into the air. Back to our text. The trumpet not only announces God's arrival, but serves to heighten the intensity of the suddenness of the change. Just as in life, when we are startled by something, something falls. You walk in what you think is an empty room and you bump into a child or something that wasn't there before. You're scared. You're startled. Happens quickly, unexpectedly. But the situation is always intensified when there's a loud sound. Good morning. 
right? When you bump something and there's a crash at the same time, your heart beats even faster. What's the situation here? The raising of dead Christians in imperishable form. And while those living meet God in the air and are also changed, verse 51, we saw that we will all be changed, dead and alive at the time. And Paul describes this as the last trumpet. This signals the end of an era. It indicates for us in Revelation that there will be other trumpet sounds. This is last because it's last for us as believers, last for us in our physical state. This is the passing of the present, our current reality, into the beginnings of eternity and glorification. That is the instantaneous reformation. We have seen also the inescapable restriction, the imminent revelation, and fourthly, the inevitable requirement. The inevitable requirement. Verse 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. This requirement, like everything we've seen thus far, is provided for us by God. He fulfills it. We come full circle and we see the resolution to the restriction that we saw back in verse 50. Namely, that we cannot get into eternity in our present state, our earthly bodies. The word for that starts verse 53 explains why the change we just saw in verse 52 is so important. It's because we are right now perishable. We are mortal. In other words, we're going to die someday. Fitting because we live in a world that is also dying. But to be precise, perishable refers to that which decays. Mortal refers to that which dies. In order to survive in the world to come, a world which does not die but is eternal, we must put on something that is appropriate. And that would be something that is imperishable. Imperishable. I feel like I'm saying that word wrong. Am I missing a syllable? Say that five times fast. But also immortal. Now, these two descriptions are related but different. It's not that we will just slowly decay but never die. That would be horrific. Nor do we stay strong and healthy and then suddenly cease to exist if we were to die naturally. Though similar, but imperishability and immortality are necessary. Paul says we will put these on. And this is terminology of putting on clothing like we saw last week. It's a different word in the Greek, but it's a similar idea. And he repeats this phrase twice, put on for emphasis. But we must be careful we don't get too carried away with the picture. It's not that our imperishable and immortal bodies will cover our perishable and mortal bodies like clothing. That would be impossible as they are opposites to the degree that they cannot coexist with one with the other. The idea is more that the old and new bodies are both garments. And in order to put on the new, we will be stripped of the old. 
This is all necessary, which is why Paul says we must do it. This is a necessary requirement for heavenly, eternal existence. And this was not a last-minute change. This was not due to an oversight where God had this wonderful plan of salvation in place and they said, "Uh uh-oh, son, they can't exist here like you do. You're in resurrection body. Let me fix this really quickly. No, this was God's plan all along. In his arrangement for our ultimate restoration unto him from sinner to child of God, that included an entirely new body. In other words, this simple little word, must, is soteriological. It has to do with salvation. And it reminds us of all that happens in the salvation of men that is a must. Because there is only one way. There is only a narrow way. There are things that must be done. And without it, you are not in Christ. Christ must die and resurrect. Sin must be repented of. Jesus Christ must be confessed as Lord. The gospel must be believed in the heart. There is no other way. It is not optional for salvation. There is only one way, and that way is restrictive. That way is narrow, but that way is freeing, and it leads to eternal life, the culmination of which is initiated by a resurrection body. And so we understand that these things must happen, And because of the will, sovereignty, plan, purposes, and power of God, they will happen. They are coming. And the question for us is, what are you going to do about it? We earlier sang in that hymn that I introduced to you earlier, that we need to rejoice That when the roll is called up yonder, believer, you will be there. But do you remember how the hymn ended? Until that day, we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. We don't respond to the love of God with sin. It doesn't make sense. And in the same way, we don't respond to a future, immortal, glorified, never-sinning, never-dying body by just lamenting and complaining about the difficulties of this body and this world and those people in this life and just wait until that day and say, hey, praise God, because that's a culmination of His glorious plan for my life, so I'm going to sit and twiddle my thumbs and just wait. Or... And we may not say this directly, but sometimes we do it. I'm going to spend all of my earthly days doing, enjoying, and amassing only that which exists in my earthly days. And so I know I will be with God, I will have time for Him for eternity. So it's me time. It's money time. 
It's family time, house time, car time, toys time, stuff time, gadgets, screens, mortgages. It's my time because I want. You say you need, but you want. We need to be faithful to the Lord. And we need to see what we have on this planet as opportunities, not for me time, but gospel time. Gospel time. Everything that you have, even the purchases that you splurge on, you say, well, maybe that wasn't the wisest, but how can I use that for God's glory? Bought a nice car? Join a car club. Get to know those people. Preach the gospel. You like coffee? Go to the same place every week. Get to know your barista. Tip big. Share the gospel. Right? What is it? What are we doing? Some of us take the other extreme too far and say, you're right. You're right. It's Christian time. Only hang out with Christians, Christian doctor, Christian mechanic, Christian everything. You don't even know unbelievers, except for the ones that you're forced to be with, like family and coworkers, and even then, you put them to the side. That's gospel time. That's God time. You don't just rush through it and say, well, I've got to go do my godly thing and minister to my family. You build relationships there. You be a testimony. You be salt and light. You know, something occurred to me a couple weeks ago is that in these earthly bodies, life is difficult. We have sin. And so even how we process things in the most righteous way and biblically and singing hymns, it's still got some sin there. There's still some selfishness. There's a willingness to keep people at arm's length, to break relationships, to just be, be selfish and say, I'm not going to forgive. That, I, that person's no good. I'm, I'm just going to focus on these people. And something happens, a difficulty, a trial, an argument with your spouse, an unruly child, a sin you don't repent of, and you are so bogged down in our frail and weak minds and bodies here on this earth, your ministry is affected. They say, I just, I can't, I need a rest. I can't, I can't go to small group. I can't, I know they're all doing that thing and they need help, but I just, I just can't because this trial is so much. But you know what I noticed those same people in their lives is almost never affected their work. They still go to work and they do their work excellently. They put in extra hours when necessary. They talk to the, their bosses pleasantly. They interact with their coworkers the same way they always did. But then, ah, oh, ministry, I just can't do it because this trial is too great. Sometimes I wonder, 
I wonder if our ministry received a paycheck. If in order to pay our bills, in order to feed our children, we had to do ministry if things would change. And the irony of that is we've been given so much grace that none of it depends on us, and so we abuse that. And we turn into people who are just concerned about self and money and pleasure, and we do our duty in the church when we should and when we can. But then everything else is just like the world. But here's the thing. Would you change your work habits if they said, you're going to work for us for the duration of 2022, and because of a weird financial glitch due to COVID, we're going to pay your entire year's salary on January 1st, and you work based on that. I think you would still work hard because there would definitely be a caveat that we're going to take it back if you quit or if you don't work. But that's essentially what we've been given in salvation. We have given blessing upon blessing, a home reserved in heaven, a promised and guaranteed resurrection body, and nothing can change that. And so we kind of take advantage, don't we? Remember that bumper sticker? Jesus is coming, look busy. And we see that and we get a little offended as believers. Because the idea, of course, is mocking the rapture. Say, well, you want to look like you're doing something good, so when he comes, he just sees that. But depending on your perspective, that can actually be theologically accurate. We should always be looking busy, not because we're just trying to look busy, it's because we are. You understand where I stand biblically on these things. Jobs are good. Houses are great. Families are wonderful. Possessions are a blessing. But are we using those for the glory of God? Are we using them for the glory of God. We do enough for the glory of our bosses. We do plenty for the glory of our company's name. We do enough for the glory of our wives, the glory of ourselves, the glory of our husbands. And the beauty of all that is every single thing you do as a believer for the glory of your boss, your company, your wife, yourself, your house, your children, can be done for the glory of God. We need to get into the mindset that everything we have has been given us for a purpose, and that purpose is God's glory. And the fun and joy in that is figuring out how do I glorify God through my car? How do I glorify God through my children? How do I glorify God through this vacation? And here's a hint. It's not always just finding people to share the gospel with. There is so, so, so much more in the Christian life. Evangelism is important. 
but hard attitude and obedience and how you raise your children and what you idolize. Those are things that we need to watch, that we need to guard. And if I can loop this giant rabbit trail back to the text, honest with myself, it's not so that we can earn a resurrection body, it's because we already have it. We don't possess it now, but we possess it on paper. That will is spiritually, legally binding. It is our inheritance. We are the heirs. And so in light of that, we must work harder. When you know you have maternity leave coming, when you know you have vacation coming, you don't go like, oh, there's vacation coming so I can slack off this week. No, you work just as hard, if not harder, because you know the reward is coming. And that's the mindset we need to have. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable will be put, will put on, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that this put on and this must is not something that we need to achieve or gain or do ourselves. It's something that you do, that it is promised it will happen. Thank you so much, Father, that we have the privilege of living, knowing where we are destined, that you have not revealed to us when we will die, how we will die, but we know what will happen when we die. And that is such a glorious and beautiful thing. So may we live in light of it. Guard us against making the most of this world in a worldly way. Help us to make the most of our short time on earth for your glory. Use us, Lord, not as just as those who know the word, who know how to preach, who know how to rebuke others, but don't apply it ourselves. Help us to be those who live out the truth for your glory. And until that day, Lord, may we look busy because we are busy. Busy with the work of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.